0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 824 for Monday, July 13th, 2020.
1: Welcome to the Mac Observers, Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in all your tips, questions, cool stuff found. We take them, we mix them all together, we massage them into an agenda, we categorize things. We flow through that agenda with the goal being, even with the tangents, because the tangents can serve the goal. The goal that is being... Each of us learns at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Burrow.com slash MGG, a new one, BareBones.com, and Mac.CashFly.com. So we will talk about all of those shortly here for you. For now, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. That is John F. Braun. How are you doing today? Yeah, hanging. Hanging. All right. Well, let's uh, let's see if we can we can jazz that up with uh, (laughs) with some some knowledge. We'll start with some quick tips from Ben. He says, uh, when I updated VLC today, the update process included an app verification moment that incidentally ran twice instead of once, resulting in a window left on my screen that just was floating there. And if I click the little red X, no effect. He said, so I started with activity monitor to try and identify the wayward process, but it wasn't under security, even though the window carries the security and privacy icon. I also thought maybe looking for the highest process ID number in activity monitor because it adds, you know, it increments the number when new things are launched uh, would help. He said, but no, that actually takes a while given the number of apps and processes running on my Mac. He says, so I pushed on and happened to minimize the window, an action I rarely take under any circumstance. He says, I much prefer to use spaces and app hiding. Fair. He says, lo and behold, doing so revealed the window's name, which was core services UI agent, which also is the name of its parent process. Using activity monitor to quit this process caused the window to disappear. So when you've got one of those floating windows, if you minimize it, Then you float over it. That will show you the name of the process that it's running as. And of course, there you go. I like this tip. This is good. I've been in that scenario before.
0: Nice.
1: Yeah, I know. I was pretty stoked about this one. So thanks, Ben. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Any thoughts on that, John, before we move on to Paul? Nope. All right. Right. Paul says, uh, If you purchase a song from iTunes and then later delete that song, the song itself is not deleted. It is only hidden on your computer. Go into Apple Music or iTunes, the app, go into accounts, view my account in the iTunes in the cloud section, click on the manage link on the hidden purchases line, find the album or song that you want to unhide and simply click the unhide button. Thanks, Paul. That's pretty good. Uh, had no idea. I mean, I knew you could get them back, but I didn't realize that there, that that was that that was there. That's that's pretty good, huh? Go figure. Thoughts on that one before we move on, Mister Mister Braun?
0: No, I don't have any music in the cloud.
1: You do you, know, you don't use iTunes Match or uh, no. iCloud Music Library in any way? No. Oh, okay. No. All right, that's okay. I mean, you know, if you don't need it, you don't need it. All right, one uh, one last quick tip before we go into some cool stuff found, and this one's from uh, listener Giles, who uh, – this is a, probably a quick tip reprise, although I'm not sure if we've called it a quick tip before. He says, I use an iPhone 10, and I really like the force touch function. I find this especially useful when trying to print or export a web page or create a PDF – where I hold press the print action via the square box with the vertical line at the bottom of the screen edge on Safari. He says, I generally don't print, but I often need to export as a PDF. On iPad Pro, this was an issue because there is no force touch. Well, there's also no force touch on the iPhone's 11. Uh, and he says, and the create PDF using shortcut work workflow is unreliable in my experience. He says, but I found a workaround. Uh, If you pinch zoom on the print pane, a new window appears, which means you can save as PDF or export to the files app as a PDF, etc. For me, this is very handy. He says, I hope everyone else finds it useful, too. Thanks, Giles. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You can get that print preview up and then just pinch zoom on it and boom, now you get a window that you can export as a PDF or, you know, do whatever you want with. And that's the way to do it on an iPhone 11 or or an iPad, as you pointed out. So
0: it's pretty good. Good, yeah? Yeah, good to know what I'll be missing once I upgrade. Mm. If I upgrade.
1: That's right. Hey, I guess the SE doesn't have Force Touch either, although it might. It's no, I'm just, still in the 8. I know, well, but I the, 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 the mm-hmm. 8, the SE is, has a lot of the same eight hardware. I got to check. I, I got to, yeah, that's interesting. It might very well have it, so. All right. Uh, yeah. Shall we go to cool stuff found here, my friend? Okay. Cool. Uh, Jeremy brings us back to the ice conversation. He says, you've been talking about ice. Ice, baby. And I wanted to point out... company that sells products and a service for this it isn't as techie as customizing your home screen he says but they do have a product that is specific for apple watch and it's a company called RoadID.com, and it's a little uh, like band that goes around your watch band and you have engraved on it all of the various contact information that you might want in case of an emergency. And, you know, of course you could put, uh, if you have some allergies or anything like that on there as well. So I, I like that. That's a pretty cool. Little thing. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Of course, ice, ice, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, thoughts on that before we go to Greg. Yeah. It's like a med alert. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like, it ties it all in together. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Uh, Greg, while we stay on the Apple watch here points out, he says, I'm sure you guys know this. Maybe the answer was no, at least for me. He says, I just opened the calculator app on my Apple watch for the first time. And uh, because I always just use the one on my phone, he says, I immediately noticed that the Apple watch calculator app has a tip calculator. And I was surprised. You just tap the tip button and you can also split the tip too. He says, who knew? Probably everyone but me. Well, possibly everyone but us, Greg. I, I did not know that this was there. So I because I always try to calculate the tip in my head or I wind up using my son's workflow that that, you know, calculates the tip so that the grand total ends in a palindromic number. And because like, I like palindromic numbers. And so anyway, uh, I had never looked. So I didn't know. That's pretty good. Handy stuff.
0: Yeah, was, I think they demonstrated it in a recent event. Maybe not the most recent, maybe the one before that. You're probably. But yeah. Right. That caught my, it caught my attention. Yeah. because I was like, Hey, um, Dave's, uh, Dave's son did something like that.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 Cause that workflow of his runs on the watch too. So, uh, yeah. All right. And, you know, I was messing around with that iPhone SE where I have the developer preview of, um, uh, iOS 14 on it. And I noticed a screen that allows me to tell the phone to use a private randomized MAC address for its Wi Fi connection. And you can do it per network. So, for example, if you're at home or at work and you want your phone's actual MAC address, to be displayed or to be shared with the DHCP server so that you get your, uh, you know, your your actual like reserved address or whatever it is. That's totally fine. You just turn it off. But otherwise, it randomizes it so that people can't track you. Uh, people have no idea because it's just a, a new one and it comes from a pool that are registered because I, I, you know, looked at what it was and then I looked it up in some Mac address lookup database and it, it comes up as like, yeah, no, this is a randomized, like this is a pool for randomized Mac addresses. Like, don't rely on this, which I thought was pretty good. Like, you know, those Apple people, they're, they're always looking out for privacy and
0: that's, I'm, I'm not against that. So, right. Yeah, though, I would think they would. I don't know. <laughs> Cause problems, if anything, because as you pointed out, a lot of things are linked to the Mac address, but
1: But, yeah, but like not my phone, like even here at the house, I don't put our phones on reservations. I mean, I'm never going to target them as like servers or anything like that. So it's not like I'm, I've never, I've never found a need to, to put, put that on my, you know, to target my phone with a Mac
0: address reservation. I do it with
1: my, with my laptop and my,
0: do you target
1: your phones with, uh. -hmm. Reservations, huh?
0: Yeah, I give them all a a known IP address just in case I want to. uh... But yeah, as you point out, there's not many cases where one would need to get something on. Right. You know, running on the phone. It's not like it's running a server or anything like that. But
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Nice find.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's pretty good. But like I said, so like for your home network, you just turn that off. And say don't randomize it, and then you'd get your, you know, your MAC address would be, or it would share the right MAC address and the same one every time. And I thought that was pretty good. So, uh, wait, is this
0: in macOS?
1: Uh, I have is? not looked for it in macOS, but it 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 is definitely hmm. in iOS uh, fourteen and iPadOS fourteen, and I believe also in WatchOS.
0: So, uh, but I don't yeah. know that actually. It's now iOS. that I think about it, I th- think you can use i f. config, I think, to change your Mac address Yes. if you type the right thing, that's correct. yeah, that's always been a
1: part of the of uh, of the you know the the UNix that's built into your your mac and and presumably mm-hmm. iOS. yeah, that's right. You could always have done it. it's not it's pretty trivial. Most network stacks allow you to change your Mac address. This is just sort of automating mm-hmm. it for you. Yeah, and I don't. Brian Monroe in the chat at uh, live.macgigab.com points out that it could could cause issues with public like Wi-Fi hotspots because once you go through the bonus uh, screen to authenticate with it, they uh, you know they put that in their database so that they don't show you the bonus screen anymore. Well. If, if, you know, your Mac address changes, but I don't think it changes until you reconnect. So for the duration of any given connection and maybe even longer than that, like maybe for that Wi-Fi network, it's like it's good for a few hours or something like that. But that would be an interesting thing to test. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, And uh, Dogster in the chat points out that it is not on Big Sur yet. Uh, at least so this is it's not a thing for the Mac yet uh, and may not ever be you know or at least not for Big Sur so thank you everybody okay fun this is see this is what we uh what we enjoy here we have um in the in the tip section we have uh some some follow-ups here and uh and I've got one from Matt and we'll let Matt take it away i think
2: hey Dave and John and maybe pilot Pete this is Matt calling from Chapel Hill. Wanted to let you all know that I've been getting caught for more than 4 years and didn't even know it. I had and still have a domain registered with GoDaddy which is for private back in the day when changing ISPs meant changing emails and I was sick of that. It predated Gmail. So <clears throat> GoDaddy used to host webmail which now they're for free which now they're charging for. That changed over, and I lost a bit of emails at the end of 2019. But anyway, figured out a way how I could forward, as I think you've detailed in the show, um, through just the domain forwarding service, free forwarding service from GoDaddy to my Gmail account. And all was well. And using the Gmail client, probably about two weeks ago, I noticed a little red broken padlock underneath the address bar and apparently when I clicked on and looked and looked and looked turns out that GoDaddy forwarding service was forwarding these emails that had come into it encrypted through TLS but it was sending it in the clear. They do not forward along with any TLS encryption or SSL. So I had to do a little bit of learning and digging. I was, my stomach dropped because four years ago, actually, probably now 10 years ago, I've been using Gmail as a forwarding service, uh, kind of cloud backup for my Mac emails. So that anything that came into my domain, I both downloaded onto my computer and then had automatically forwarded it to Gmail so I could do searches and stuff like that and just have it as a backup. And I had never looked. Sure enough, for four years, when I used the Gmail client, there's a broken lock on all the forwarded emails coming from my domain. So this is shocking, but I wanted to clear that up as best I could. So I have found a free workaround, and uh, that's to suggest to you that uh, forwardemail.net is a free open source project. And they walk you through the process of going into your domain. So anybody that has a domain with GoDaddy and might be forwarding anything to Gmail, just so you're aware, or anywhere, uh, it will be unencrypted. So you can use forwardemail.net. It will, in an encrypted format, um, forward it along to any of a variety of different ways in which you could parse your emails. Huh. Uh, you have to change some settings, specifically something called the MX and the TXT settings. This is something new to me.
1: But- yeah, no, okay. All right, so we, like, yes, forwardemail.net will will walk you through how to, how to migrate your domain to them so that it can then be the forwarder instead of GoDaddy being the forwarder. And that's great. And we'll put a link to forwardemail.net in the show notes, although you probably remember it by now. Um, As far as the core problem, I want to make sure we address what the issue is, because most email is not encrypted in terms of like when I send John an email, unless I go out of my way to use like, you know, GPG or S-MIME or something like that, the email is not encrypted in a way that only you could read it. Anyone that has access to your email account could read that what. He's talking about here. What Matt's talking about is the scenario where when mail is transferred from one mail server to another. So let's say that John was sending me email, but I was being forwarded by GoDaddy. Right. So I was hosting my domain my mail domain with GoDaddy. So John sends me an email, his mail server connects to GoDaddy's mail server, which then says, oh, we forward this. So that then connects to whatever I'm hosting my mail at, let's say Gmail. And then that uh, finally, you know, lands in my box. The connections between those mail servers nowadays, and for many years can be encrypted with TLS so that when each server hands the message to the next one, the data path is encrypted. Someone sniffing the path of data would just get an encrypted blob and nothing valuable. Uh, What he's pointing out is that, again, in this example, John sends an email, his mail server encrypts the connection to GoDaddy, but then GoDaddy does not encrypt the connection on the outbound because that's just not how their email forwarder is set up, forwardemail.net, does encrypt both inbound and outbound connections. So it's similar to like when you connect to your bank, right? What you're seeing on the screen is not encrypted, right? Anybody that's looking over your shoulder can also see that. But people that are sniffing the connection in transit just see the encrypted part. That's what we're talking about here. And I've never really worried about this, you know, because I guess I'm so used to the concept of email being not encrypted right i mean it like it wasn't no part of it was encrypted in in the you know originally so i've just always sort of treated email as this thing in the clear and anytime i've sent a credit card number or whatever via email which i don't do often but i'm sure i have done over time you know just out of convenience i'm always sort of aware that yeah you know like this is a little bit safer than writing it on a a card and like posting it on a shop window downtown but it, because, you know, it's not like there for easy access to by, but somebody that wants to to sniff that stuff certainly could. Um, so like, this is, it, it's something to be aware of. And if it bothers you, then you, we have a solution. And if it doesn't bother you, that's okay. But I, like, it's
0: good to be aware, I think. So what do you think about this, John? Um, yeah, I think usually most if not all i think of my connections are encrypted in some way and they're typically on a different port
1: right right, right. well yeah the connected uh, encrypted connections are either
0: 587 or or right yeah i knew it's uh, like 5 something so yeah, normally or it's the other uh, normally i think yeah, I don't know. yeah so normally i think it's 25 right
1: well yeah 25 25? is SMTP? for is for um yes 25 is the default port for smtp uh, for inbound mail, but for outbound mail, it no longer is. Right? Oh, right, right. Yeah, they changed that so that you could split things and do this kind of encryption and block stuff out, and yeah, it just made life a little a little easier. But yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, all right. Four forty-five and five eighty-seven is is what uh, we're hearing in the chat room there, and if you want to watch us while we record and, and provide real time feedback. Uh, we really appreciate that live. Mac Plus it's fun. You get to chat with the community and, and there's all kinds of things going on in the chat room that we don't necessarily that don't surface to the show. And that's, it's great. Like community is, is awesome. All right. Uh, a couple more tips here, John, the next one from Todd who says, um, uh, Last week in 823, when we were talking about contacts and smart groups and things like that, he said, uh, I had the same problem with edit distribution list a few OS versions ago. He says, I got the same blank screen on my Mac in contacts that you did. He says, I worked my way up in Apple support. On this, and they were supposed to email me back, but I never heard back. He says, One solution I did find was removing all the accounts in the contacts app except for iCloud. Then, Edit Distribution List worked as expected and kept all of the changes I made, even when I added the other contact accounts back. He says, Just a hint for listeners that are using older OS versions where this isn't fixed. And I was definitely in that boat. I have my Gmail contacts also synced in my address book. So I'm sure that that was, cause it's, it was just a user interface problem. It wasn't like a functionality problem. It would do it. You just couldn't see it do it, which is the frustrating part. So, um, so yeah, it makes perfect sense that, you know, somebody just didn't code around like what happens when there's this extra thing there. So I don't know. What do you think, Mr. Braun? Um, confusing. It's confusing. It is. Yeah, it's good. Uh, Oh, you have a couple more things. And I want to get to especially this one about Touch Bar MacBook Pros that you've got queued up here, John. But the the next thing that I want to do is I want to talk about our sponsors for today. If that works for you, my friend, Mr. Braun. Absolutely. All right. Our first sponsor today is a new sponsor at burrow.com slash MGG. When I buy a couch, I want to have some control over the design, right? And usually that means you got to go to a showroom and just check each model. Oh, does that have the things I want? Is it comfortable? But does it have the things I want? And is it comfortable? But does it, you know, and it's this constant thing. Oh, and is it the color I want, but does it have the things I want? And is it comfortable? You're doing this circular thing and it's such a process Wouldn't it be better if you could go online and go through over 23,000 different permutations of the perfect sofa so that you can customize your own perfect sofa? Yes, it would. And that's what Burrow is doing. And even for us geeks, Burrow's sofas include built-in USB chargers so that your phone doesn't die while you lounge, right? Everything's made of durable fabric that, or leather, that, and the fabric is uh, naturally scratch and stain-resistant. And like I said, you can just customize everything, fabric color, leg finish, armrest style, length, right, length. You can even add a chaise lounge or an ottoman or both. Like You, you just mix and match and fit what fits in your room, your life, your body, everything. You figure it out. And you can assemble your sofa or break it down in minutes and you don't need any tools. And if your seating needs change, you can add or remove seats as needed. Convert a love seat into a sofa, into a sectional and back, right? Shopping easily right there on your computer. You just kind of tweak and get it just right. And then they ship it to you because the folks that started Burrow, I think it was a class project somewhere, right? They, They just wanted to fix this problem. And so they fixed it and you always get fast and free shipping and zero interest financing. Go to Burrow dot com slash MGG and you get a little bit more because you get seventy five dollars off your purchase again. Plus that fast and free shipping. You got to see the site for details. That's B.U.R.R.O.W. Dot com slash MGG for seventy five dollars off our thanks to Burrow for sponsoring this episode. Our next sponsor is one of my favorite pieces of software, and that's bbEdit13.1 from barebones.com. Yep, Uh, just last month, they dropped the new bbEdit13.1, which brings back HTML tidy and introduces a completely overhauled preview feature, also adds a new run Unix command command, Think about that, right? It's called run Unix command, but it is in itself a command, very meta. And uh, it expands the whole array of supported markdown variants. This run Unix command thing is awesome because it provides a quick means to directly run one off Unix commands for processing text within BB Edit. And also, like I said, the preview engine in BB Edit. This is one of the coolest things, right? Because you can write all your code, and then you want to, if you're doing HTML, you want to see what it's going to look like. Well, That's what the new preview thing is really working for. It's faster. It's smoother. It's more complete. Like, yeah, I know I get crazy and excited about a text editor, but that's BB at its fault. And you need to experience that for yourself. So go to barebones.com, download your 30-day free trial, right? And then decide which of the features you need to keep, right? Because it's got that... That GREP Playgrounds, the Regex Playgrounds, well, now that Numbers 10.1 from Apple supports Regex, you want a place where you can go play so that you know how to use that stuff when you're over on the other side, right? So this is like its own little tool within this bigger tool. Again, very meta. So go check it out. Barebones.com. Download your 30-day free trial. Depending on what features you need, it might just remain free for you forever. And if you need some of those other features, well, then, then you pay for it because that's how that works. Our thanks to Bare Bones for making BBEdit and for sponsoring this episode. Next up for today is CashFly at Mac.CashFly.com. Yes, CashFly are the folks who provide the bandwidth to get MacGeek from us to you, but they do more than that. They have your back. For your website, for your business, because with their new web optimization capabilities, all of your website's content will be optimized before it's delivered to your visitors without requiring any development effort for you. And this matters, right? Because for each second a page takes to load, it costs a company 16% in engagement. Fewer visits mean fewer customers. That's not good. And so the same people that have been helping us for years can help you. Their web optimization solution at Cashfly includes powerful APIs for solving all those content distribution problems. They'll do your on-the-fly next-gen image optimization for you. You don't need to think about it. They'll do all your load balancing and smart asset delivery. And if your website's tied to your revenue, this stuff's important. And the good people at CashFly are even going to provide a free optimization consultation for listeners of this podcast. That's right. Just for you know exactly where your site stands today with a lighthouse score report and learn how CashFly's web optimization solution can help add 60 points instantly to your score. All you have to do is visit Mac.CashFly.com. That's M-A-C dot C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. Our thanks to Cashfly for sponsoring this episode.
0: All right, Dave. Uh, This is kind of a follow-up from uh, Jin. Okay. Uh, And here's his uh, question. Uh, He had two questions. Uh, and So I took this one because we really didn't answer it in a prior episode. So, um, yeah, what what was observed uh, in a prior episode is that on the Touch Bar Mac with Touch ID, like the one that I have, um, you can't get the dialog that says "Sleep, Restart, Shutdown" by holding down the power key. It's just not available, right? Um, and here's a nasty thing: they even say this in in a support article. So I found this, and so here's Apple's answer. Unlike with older Mac notebooks, holding down Touch ID on your MacBook Pro or MacBook Air doesn't display a dialog with options: the Sleep, Restart, or Shutdown. Okay. Uh, you can find these options in the Apple menu. <laughs> it's like, well, thanks. Well, I, yeah, thanks for not doing that. <laughs> um, so, as we we pointed out in in the last episode, you can get some of this functionality, but I wanted to to close the loop here because it wasn't really an uh, answer. So, the thing is, you can add a sleep. And also I found there's a, another one that's pretty handy. So it's actually more. So if you go to System Preferences, Keyboard, customized Control Strip, you can drag a sleep and a lock screen option to the touch bar. Wow. So you get some stuff. But then how do you get the other dialogues? Well, I found an article that told me how to do that, Dave. So uh, you go in kind of the same place. So you go to System Preferences, Keyboard, Shortcuts, App Shortcuts. And what you do is you add... Um, two entries uh and they use the same wording so and and I confirmed that this this works fine sure. so I added one called restart dot 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 and one called shutdown dot 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 but what I did is I mapped them to a function key so I mapped it to function F10 and F12 because F uh, function 11 is uh, does something else
1: sure oh that's really smart and so when
0: I hold down so when you hold down the function key uh, the touch bar gives you, you know, F whatever, uh, all the function keys, and uh, it works exactly as you would expect. So if I hold down function F10, it says, "Hey, you want to restart?" <laughs> and uh, F12 I map to the shutdown. So that's how you get all of these options, plus the lock screen one, which is kind of handy, and you should always do when you leave your computer sitting there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah, I mean, not not if you're, you know, socially distanced, but if you are. Then you know or if somebody else can, yeah. can come around when you're uh, when when you're not there. Yeah, that's that's true. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Back back in the day when I did the corporate thing, and actually uh, for 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 a short while, I actually worked for a, a place that did DOD projects. Yeah. And uh, the sysadmin, one one of them that I knew they would actually look at your terminal, and if you were idle for a certain amount of time, they would come, and if you weren't there. You'd get like a nasty gram. Like, oh, nice. Uh, this is a security violation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They were real serious about, you know, uh, bad people getting access to uh, Absolutely. your data. Absolutely. But, yeah, but no. you're right. Yeah. If, if you're at home.
1: Yeah. It's um, not
0: quite as important, but,
1: <laughs> but it, like it's, it is a thing to be aware of. Yeah. 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 No, it's, that's good. That's good. All right. Cool. Excellent. Let's, um, We've got some what I call general questions, the the things that make life interesting for us all here. So let's go to listener John, who says, uh, I recently purchased a new car, Lincoln Nautilus, with Apple's CarPlay. And he says, I have two questions. The first is there are a limited number of apps that CarPlay supports. Uh, Is there a way to add apps? other apps that are not carplay uh, at least out of the gate he says one app i used is called i use is called i exit and uh, when traveling the interstates this app provides information about restaurants gas stations etc and you are approaching along uh, with the exits within distance and he says uh, is there a workaround so this app can be displayed with carplay and secondly he says i use google maps for driving directions google maps Has an icon where I can report crashes and slowdowns and speed traps and those sorts of things. Google Maps then displays this on the map. Apple CarPlay does not show this icon. Is there a setting where this icon can be displayed on on CarPlay? And then he says third, and finally, CarPlay randomly disconnects for me while driving. I get the message the iPhone is not connected and needs to be connected through USB. Unplugging and replugging does not solve the problem. After restarting my phone a few times or turning the car off and on, that solves the problem. I'm wondering if anybody else has had that. So I'm going to answer these in order, John. We can talk through them. Uh, the first about CarPlay and adding apps to CarPlay, you and I don't get to do that. That's up to developers. They build screens for CarPlay, and then they flag that their app is CarPlay capable, and then CarPlay will pull those screens. Because CarPlay is essentially just an external touchscreen monitor for your iPhone. And so when you're in CarPlay mode, it's it's the app is all running on your phone. So for an app that doesn't support CarPlay for you to say, I want that on CarPlay, it like it doesn't, the app does not have a screen built to do that. So it would not know what to display. So that that's a no go, unfortunately, but write to your, you know, the developer of your iExit app and any other app you want and see if they'll do it. Now, same as, The same concept will help answer our second question, which is that Google builds the screen for CarPlay and it like for maps, they didn't add that in. So you won't get that option. However, Waze is also a Google product now, and it does have all of that stuff in it. So maybe that's why they sort of chose to to not include that in the Google version. Uh, the Google Maps version, but if you want that functionality, you can use Waze, and and they've built that into those screens. I'm I'm not a big fan of like gamifying my driving. I, I figure if you want to do that, get a car with a stick shift, and at least then you're mm-hmm. still focused on the road. But um, but I don't know. You know, I, I guess it's handy. Any thoughts on this before we talk about
0: his CarPlay troubles? No, I just remember your reaction.
1: <clears throat> so yeah. He's-
0: when Watch, you were driving with me, and well, I was like, I was passengering with, with you.
1: Yeah, don't fiddle yeah. with that.
0: <laughs> what are you doing? But while you're driving. <laughs> yeah, I think they they accept hand motions as um, uh, as a, a way to get something to happen, or just speech recognition. Yeah, I should try them. It wasn't successful first time around with that. So. Yeah, and
1: CarPlay doesn't support like hand gestures. You have to touch it because yeah. there's no camera with CarPlay, but um but yeah 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 um all right now as far as this randomly disconnect thing i got you because i've been here before my subaru outback 20 what year is it now i think that was a 2018 um is a 2018 when i first got it i was having exactly this problem and so i went crazy troubleshooting it because you know obsessed and uh i tried different cables and once like you, once it happened, unplugging and replugging, even the, a known working cable would not bring it back most of the time. Of course, sometimes it wouldn't. That that frustrates things even more because, you know, we like consistency when we're troubleshooting. But I tried it with not only different um, cables, but with different iPhones. So I narrowed it down to the car being the issue. And my car has two USB ports that both will feed the CarPlay engine of the head unit, and neither one of those works. So different cables, different phones, like definitely this is a problem in the car. And so then I started reading for me, it was the Subaru Forms. Harman Kardon makes the head unit, and there have been some problems with this. Uh, the long story short was that I wound up getting the head unit replaced uh and and that, like, it has mostly been fine. I want to say maybe I've seen this problem once or twice since then, but not consistently. And it would happen when I was, like, using, like, Overcast to play a podcast, maybe, and ways to do my directions. And then a call would come in, and then that was the end of it. Like, there, it would, it would sort of cascade into this scenario where, like, that was done. I did find something out, and I think this is unique to the Harman Kardon head unit's, So it may be you may have a very similar head unit in that Lincoln Nautilus. I don't know. But um, certainly in the Subarus with these CarPlay head units, hold the power button for the head unit in like normally you just tap it to like toggle the power on and off. Hold it in. That will reboot the head unit. You'll see the logo come up, and that's when you know you can like take your hand off the button. But that's way better than having to reboot the entire car just to reboot the head unit because while you're driving, rebooting the car is a tricky scenario. And it, it safely involves pulling over and turning the car off. I suppose there are other ways to do it, but I wouldn't really – condone any of any of that silliness while you're rolling 70 miles an hour. Like that's just shut the car off. It's fine. Put it in neutral. No problem. I wouldn't do that. Please don't do that. I did not tell you to do that. I never did that. So just hold the button in. It should reset. the head unit. What you have.
0: Oh, we had. um. Uh, yeah. I remember when I took driver's ed. Oh, we actually had um, one of the lessons. It was, I think the favorite of everybody and it was called emergency procedures. And one of them was simulating what would happen if your engine died. And what would happen is the instructor would reach over and basically turn the car off and see how you handled it. <laughs> yeah, but that's, Pretty terrifying.
1: That is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I was up in an airplane once. Uh, I was not flying it. It was a small little four seater. My brother was taking a flying lesson. I was in the back. It was this old guy who they joked in the uh, in the flight office that he had soloed Orville. Uh, you know, that he, they're like, you'll be fine with him. So we're up at like whatever, 3000 feet, we're cruising along. And my brother asked Lloyd, well, he asked him two questions. The first was, he's like, what's the range on this plane? And Lloyd, without missing a beat, retorted, uh, what's the range on your bladder? And so that ended that conversation. And then, uh, and then he asked Lloyd, he said, so like, what would happen if, you know, the engine cut out? Like, what would we do? And again, without missing a beat, Lloyd just leans over and kills the engine. I'd never known a CFI to do that before. I knew that they would like throttle you down so that you could feel. But, you know, Mm -hmm. restarting an engine is not a guarantee. And, you know, it's not like you can just pull over and and check under the hood to see what your problem is when you're at 3000 feet going whatever, 120 knots. But um but you know, Lloyd pointed out the plane is just a glider at this point. You're fine. He's like, you've got three runways. Pick your favorite. Radio to the tower that you have an emergency and and go land. And then you know we had that conversation. And finally, I tapped Lloyd on the shoulder and said, "Can we turn the engine back on now? Because yeah. we, we got the point. Like we're good." And so he did. He turned it back on. It wasn't the most comfortable thing. So nice. Yeah. Uh, where were we? You going to take us to Rand? You're going to save it. Oh, um, there is one follow up. I believe uh, listener John is in our chat room at live.macgeekhub.com and says uh, he's now using an Apple provided cable and has to be has been having better luck. Absolutely. You want to make sure you use MFI certified cables, the made for iPhone, made for iOS. I forget what they've renamed it to, but you want a cable that is certified, whether it's Apple's or someone else's really doesn't matter uh, it may matter when you're talking to your dealer because they know Apple cable more reliable. So tell them you're using an Apple cable, but make sure you are using an MFI certified cable. If not from Apple, um, I found some for the car that have uh, they're like coiled. So they, they retract sort of automatically. And I've found that really handy for car play. So I don't have cables just like strewn about. And I don't have wireless car play. So. So there you go. Thank you. Good, fun. You want to take us to Rand, John? Or unless you got more on the CarPlay thing?
0: No, no, we're we're good. Um, All right, Rand's got a head scratcher, but I have run into this. Mm. So Rand says, I had only about 25 gigs left on my one terabyte SSD. Wow. So I looked for places to reclaim storage space. So I moved about 200 gigs of downloads and stale documents, but did not get any space freed up. Despite filling an external drive with 200 gigabytes of old stuff, sure. Does the purgeable space mean anything in this situation? You have probably talked about this, but I cannot find anything in your recent notes. Um, I think we kind of talked about this when when um when we had um uh, uh, um uh, when we were talking APFS.
1: Oh yeah yeah uh, yeah yes yes
0: we did we sort of touched on this yeah right. Yeah, and one observation was that the the something about the amount of free space isn't necessarily accurate (laughs) all the time, but it also may not get freed all the time, which has been my experience. So, so I ran into something similar: is that I was moving around some large uh, virtual machine files, like yeah, on the order of I think tens of gigs, or or, uh, not the same size as what he's moving around, but still. But yeah, I ran into the same thing is that I would, you know, I wanted to toss one. And so I tossed it and then I looked and I'm like, well, where's all my free space? It still showed the old old amount of free space. The only thing that I found that helped Dave was that I would go into recovery, um, run disk utility and then do a first aid. And for whatever reason with APFS, that operation um, freed up the space. It gave huh. the disk whatever it, it needed to do to free things up now here's the other thing that i've noticed uh one time when i was doing this dave yes. um, i looked in my process list and there was one process uh that was chugging along uh delete d which uh anything with a d at the end is a uh, uh, demon daemon however you want to pronounce it sure um uh, but it's background process and i'm like oh well, that's interesting let's look that up and That apparently is the process that takes care of this. Interesting. uh, And that when you delete something, it eventually gets around to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Something's got to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'll buy that. I wonder if running disk first aid. So this, well, first of all, this would have eventually sorted itself out. It sounds like it just takes. Yes. It's it's an asynchronous process that it doesn't. Yeah. But, you
0: know, when I was doing this and and brand was doing this, I mean, I want instant gratification. I want to see that space show up. Immediately.
1: No, I've seen this too, uh, especially if my goal is to free up space and not just deleting mm. files. Like, yeah, no, I'm with you. Okay. So it would happen. I wonder if running it, I wonder if you needed to go into recovery mode because you can run disk first aid, at least in verify only mode just from your boot disk, right? I think you can do that still with APFS. I'm not going to try it while we're doing a show, but. Uh, No.
0: Oh, no, definitely not. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it will slow down your disk access. I, I mean, maybe that
0: would be enough. Uh, it could. Yeah. And I think the response was, yes, this uh, did give it the nudge. So that's, that's good. So I think that's it's good. just an APFS thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. They want to give you, you know, they don't want to hold your user interface hostage just to, just to do that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it makes sense. Give you control back and, and we'll take care of this other thing in the background here. So yeah. Interesting. It's fascinating what's going on here with, uh, with all the file system stuff. I like it. It's just keeps it interesting. All right. Um, this might be a geek challenge, John. I'm, in fact, I'm not sure it's doable, but you never know. Maybe there's some other way. Bruce writes, do you know of any way that a single Mac can be set up in the messages app to receive messages from more than one iCloud account? Perhaps family sharing, he says, or something. So what he wants is he wants to have two iMessage accounts readable on the same Mac. And I, you know, the only way I can think to do that is to set up, well, there's two ways, right? One is to set up multiple user accounts, but then you've got to switch user accounts. I mean, you could use fast user switching and log each of them into their own separate iCloud account. But I looked in messages. I didn't see a way of saying, Hey, just throw another iCloud account in here. Didn't seem to, to work. Um, the other option would be to set up a virtualized container running a separate macOS installation and log that in. It seems it's, that's a little overkill, too, to just have another copy of messages running. But I, like, I think those are the only options.
0: So I don't know. What do you think, John? Um, yeah. I mean, it is kind of overkill, but yeah, I don't I- think they have the... Uh, ability to do that.
1: Just say, yeah, show me other yeah. iMessage accounts. Yeah, I know. I like the question though. It's, uh, it's good. If anybody has any, any thoughts, please feedback at com. We'd love to hear them.
0: Did you say feedback at MacGeeCab?
1: John, I did. I said feedback at com. I'm looking, I'm looking here in the chat room to see if anybody in, uh, Dogster says the closest would be the workaround of using multiple email addresses with a single iMessage account. Right. That's true. Um, but it's not designed to support separate iMessage accounts. So he is right that one iMessage account can have, you know, you'll have a phone number attached to it usually. And then you can have many email addresses, including like non iCloud email addresses. And that's a handy thing to put in there. I found it, you know, if I put sort of the addresses that people know how to email me at, it, adding them to that iCloud account actually makes life a little bit easier. If somebody iMessages me, it, you know, it all comes in and, and works, but, um, but yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see what, uh, folks come up with. We'd love to hear about it. Charles, John, you want to take us to, uh, to what he's got going on? Yeah.
0: All sorts of disc action here. Um, all right, hold on. I'll hold, um, here we go. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, this is going back. What do you think of the following screenshot? In my decades of using Macs, um, starting with a Mac SE and disc swapping heaven, I've never seen this dialogue slash warning running low on SSD memory is pretty common for me, but application memory, this is on a 2012 MacBook air using the most recent version of Catalina and he has eight gigs of memory and a 256 gig SSD with 23 gigs free. Just so everybody knows, because they can't see the screenshot you're seeing, John, he he
1: has a, a screen that's come up uh, right. offering to force quit applications with the warning being your system has run out of application memory to avoid problems with your computer. Quit any applications you are not using. So it's like you need to quit some apps. And I've seen this dialogue not often, but once or twice.
0: So please carry on. my. Yeah. You should never see this dialogue because... Uh, Unix is supposed to manage memory, uh, whether it be uh, your wired memory or, you know, going out the swap. And I think that's what happened here, Dave. And then the app that it showed, I don't think it's a coincidence, so it showed the, the apps that were running, and text that it is listed, Dave, and it was taking 21 gigs of memory. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't think it's a coincidence, Dave, that that number seems to be very close to the amount of uh, disk space he has free. So I wonder if it was filling up, uh, if it was going to swap. Ah, yeah, okay. right. It just seems weird that those 20-something gig uh, are close. Um, And then he has a question, where would TextEdit have gotten started and what app do I use to see if this recurs? Why did it gobble up so much app memory that my system wouldn't app swap? Uh, would System Profiler or System Monitor have shown me anything? Uh, I'm assuming I could have gotten it running. Any thoughts? Um, yeah, I got I got some thoughts here. Okay. Um, yeah, so this is what's what's uh, called a memory leak, Dave. I think where an application, for whatever reason, uh, doesn't release memory, sure, or keeps gobbling up memory, and uh, and this is what you see when that happens. Um uh unfortunately when you get into this state it may be hard to get back to normal but um i don't know why text that it got launched or if you can tell what launched it maybe going through a a console log um but there is something dave uh and it's been updated called swift default apps and that may you may want to see what uh this shows all all the different mappings um you know, like document type to application. Yeah. So you could see what apps are set to launch text edit because it sounds like you didn't intentionally launch it; is that it got launched because you opened a, a certain document? So maybe the mapping is uh, is is off there. Yeah. 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 Um, as far as a way to tell when this is happening, uh, you could look in a, you could have activity monitor running in the background, but I think the best way, Dave, would be. Um, to use an iStat menus notification. So you may not know this, but in addition to showing you all sorts of uh, interesting information, iStat menus can also tell you when certain terrible things are happening or usually terrible. Um, and I looked, and so what they have under the memory category, Dave, is you can set a notification if either memory pressure or free memory get to a certain state. Right. So, uh, so either, you know, peak. Pe- you know, up in the menu bar every now and then or do one of these notifications in istat menus. I'm not aware of how to do this with the system itself. I mean, maybe you could run a automator or Apple script that would check may, no.
1: maybe yeah, istat menus I, would be your that I, I love those little things because I, I have my Mac notify me when I'd totally forgotten that I had put this in place, but I have it notify me when I'm below a certain amount of, you know, free RAM. So that I can be like, oh, okay. Like I also have it notify me if the CPU is high for more than 60 seconds or something. Oh, right. Because I, I mean, sometimes that. that's intentional. I, like I'm doing a thing and it's crunching and I want to use my like, that's great. But sometimes an app runs away and you don't, you know, if, unless you're obsessively looking, you, you hmm. wouldn't know. And it's like, no, I want to know. Tell me if if things are cooking. And if it, if I see that alert because I'm running like some, you know, Handbrake process or something like that. Well, That's great, no problem. Like, yeah, okay, good. Yep, all's well then ends well. But.
0: Yeah, I may do that because every once in a while the fans will spin up on my MacBook Pro, and I don't know why. Right, right. Um, well, sometimes I'll look in the process list, and something you know is just going crazy. It's going nuts. Yeah, uh, exactly. That they didn't expect. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. um, so that's um that's what I got for that.
1: I like it. That's great. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. App Tamer is another thing that can help uh, maintain CPU uh, constraints on an app. I don't, I don't think it'll do anything with. I can't remember if it does anything with RAM usage. I don't think so. I think it's just uh, helping to limit CPU usage, and you can say, you know, only limit the CPU usage if this app is using more than say 10% of the CPU or 30%, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want to set it to on a per app basis. And you can, you can even say only do this if the app is hidden. Uh, y- you know, like there's all kinds, of, I love app tamer. It's great for those kinds of things. And then finally for your issue, John, um, Oh, I, I can't read. Yeah. Turbo boost, uh, switcher is right, right, one of my favorite things because now what I do is I have it, Set I have the pro version because you can set some automations, and one of the automations you can set is when your fan is higher than uh, you know a certain a certain amount of rpms for a certain amount of time, so I say if mine 's above two thousand rpm oh for, for more than uh, thirty seconds or maybe it 's sixty seconds, now engage turbo boost like your disengage turbo boost. And that will almost always bring it down. Now, again, there's times where I want to let it, you know, kind of run rampant and I can just turn that off. But, uh, but mm-hmm. it's nice to just have it like, no, we'll throttle it back, you know, which is most of the time what I prefer. Cause I don't like my computer to sound like a, mm-hmm. you know, jet engine blasting off. Right. So, yeah. All right. We got any more like that? That's see, This seems to be the question that just uh, keeps on giving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. I think we're good. Okay, cool. Uh,
1: Drew asks us uh, about, uh, well, he says we're entering the mesh category here or, well, routers in general, not just mesh. Uh, He says, but uh, I was wondering about a setting, a new setting that I have seen in Eero called uh, optimize for conferencing and gaming. He says, I'm wondering if you guys have an opinion on the utility of this setting. I have a situation where I have a pretty good connection, 900 megabits per second down, 35 megabits per second up in my house, but a much weaker connection uh, in the in-law flat in my backyard where I often do my Zoom and Skype calls these days. He says it's not clear to me if slash how much of an effect that toggle might have. I tried testing, but there are so many variables. It's tough to be sure if there's any appreciable effect. Uh, he says, on the other hand, maybe that answers my question, and it is negligible or only helps in rare edge cases. So Eero has renamed one of their features. They used to have a feature called Smart Queue Management, right? And what this would do is, for us, it was what we call WAN-based QoS, or more appropriately, Buffer Bloat Protection. Buffer bloat being that thing where when all of your or lots of your devices or even just one device is uploading a ton of data, it sort of slows everything else down because your upstream gets soaked and most cable modems can't deal with that properly. So they've renamed this from smart queue management to optimize for conferencing and gaming near as I can tell it is exactly the same feature with just a new name. So I don't think the functionality has appreciably changed, uh, but, uh, but that's, you know, that's what it is. Now, as to whether or not you need it, I have two answers. The first is that based on your speeds, your speeds are the same as mine. So I'm assuming you are on a Comcast slash Xfinity gigabit connection and if you are then you have a docsis 3.1 cable modem by definition and you don't have buffer bloat problems anyway so this setting will make almost no difference for you don't need it now uh to solve your problem though that sounds like a range issue uh and and so start thinking about you know do i would do some speed tests because that's a, or an even ping test to see if you're getting consistency but you may need to move some things around in the house or maybe add another access point so that you get a nice strong signal out to the uh the makeshift office that you are now using for your for your skype and zoom calls so that that sounds like what that problem is, but anyway, what do you think, Mr. braun? I concur you concur excellent <laughs> all right uh Roger. Brings us a question that sort of merges these two things. He says, uh, I have a question about a message I received from Plume, the mesh company concerning my Wi-Fi setup. He says, the message says Plume has identified that my system has a second network name in my home. That is the same name as my Plume network's uh, Wi-Fi network, the SSID. He says, Plume recommends that I disable the Wi-Fi function on whatever that device is, because it might interfere with plume steering devices to the right pods in my house. Here's my issue. He says, I've definitely caused this problem. I used to do what they're recommending when I first installed the plume pods. However, on several occasions when I was out of town, there would be a power outage that would cause the modem slash router and the plume pods to go offline. When the power was restored, the modem would come back. But the Plume pods would ultimately not function uh, until I returned home, unplugged them from the wall, then plugged them back in. Needless to say, without Plume acting as a router, I was without security cameras, video doorbells, and access to my thermostat or anything else in my house. After several such incidents, I got the latest modem router from Xfinity, changed the name to my same SSID that Plume uses, and then plugged the Plume pods back in. My theory, he says, is that the Xfinity modem router is powerful enough to reach at least half of my house where I have my security cameras, the video doorbell and thermostats. He says if power goes out and the plume pods don't come back, uh, the devices that can still be accessed because the Xfinity is broadcasting the same SSID. So they just jump from one to the other. He says so far it's worked flawlessly. Should I just ignore the plume message or am I missing something? Uh, he says the plume pods definitely make the signal stronger. And allow the Wi-Fi to reach parts of the house that the modem will not. Okay, so I love this. This is very interesting. The plume pods are great, by the way. They're definitely, you know, up there with uh, with Eero, in my opinion, in terms of, like, the, the meshes that I trust. I, I think right now in the house, I'm running the plume pods for, for like, the last week, and that's been pretty good. Um, anyway, we like interesting here, Roger, so thank you. Um, your current scenario will work. And from a safety net standpoint, I actually really like the creative solution that you came up with here. Um, what you're missing is exactly what Plume tells you you're missing the ability to, for Plume to truly manage your Wi Fi, because it's generally speaking, it's up to the client devices to choose which access point they connect with. The router can only provide guidance, um, but Plume's guidance is arguably the best I've ever seen. They're really good at knowing like, oh, you should be you should jump to this pod and they do it right away. And they they've profiled every device so that they know, okay, well, iPhones respond best when we nudge them to a new device this way. But that Samsung, you know, Galaxy S8, that's weird. So we have to nudge that this way and and plumes really good at that. And I've had like zero problems with that roaming or anything with plume and it's fast, like definitely the fastest I've ever seen. So you will potentially lose the benefit of this because your mesh isn't the only thing that your devices will be connecting to. Some of your devices may just choose to connect to the Wi-Fi in your router. And if your router like at at this point actually Plume is pretty smart. So if you have your router being a router, which you do, Plume will automatically set itself into bridge mode so that you're not having a double NAT scenario, which is that's good. I right? and I also like that about Plume. Um but you know, that's why from a Wi-Fi standpoint this is not optimal. So I know this has been a problem with Plume in the past. They've done weird things. Like they would they used to just take the network down anytime the internet connection was cut off and it was like, no, don't, please don't do that. I, you know, like I have devices that want to talk with each other, even though we can't talk out to the internet. And so plume fixed that for sure. They may have fixed the problem you're talking about. So it's worth testing this by simulating a power outage and, and then just, you know, letting things come back on and see what happens generally I think what you want to do to test that is make sure your plume pods come back online before your router is on. And then that might answer your question here. But, um, but if it doesn't, then I kind of actually like this scenario you've, you've put together here because it makes sure that you, you know, your devices have something if you're not there to manually coax it back to life. So
0: I don't know. What do you think, Mr. Mr. Braun? <clears throat> It it seems kind of weird that they're smart enough to know that there's someone that's not them out there and that it confuses their algorithm. I, I just don't get that. Oh, okay. So, no, it's you know, good because I mean, the thing is, they, well, the, they know that there's a rogue or as they see it, I guess. No, that's, that's what um, it is. It's a rogue access point. Right. Yeah. Trying to hijack. It's not part of the club. Well, they know that because I guess they look at the, uh, a Mac address and they know if it's a plume product or not. And if it's not, if it's not in their range, then I guess that that's when you get this message.
1: Or if it's not one of the, you know, four plume pods that are assigned to your account, like they, even if it's Mm -hmm. another plume, like they could be like, "Mm -mm, no, like that's not part of this club. Yeah. But the, the, the problem is as soon as you join the non plume device. So in this case, the Xfinity router plume, you lose all the benefits of plumes routing your device might like try and hang on to that router connection longer than it should. You don't get the benefits of, of plumes sort of uh, Wi-Fi management and you might start having signal strength issues with both. If they're both competing on the, for the same channel too, like, you know, there's the coordination that you get when you have a mesh is lost. When you start introducing your own devices into the mix, Um, it doesn't mean that that's the wrong thing to do. It just means that you're losing some of those benefits of of mesh when you choose to do that. But you know, it's a compromise. So so that's why you you wouldn't right. want that. Yeah. Which is a good question, because it seems like, wait a minute, you know. And in his scenario, it might be the absolutely right thing. So I don't know. All right. Uh should we go to Wilco here, John? How are sure. we doing on time? Okay. Yeah, we're cranking along. Good. Uh Wilco says, I am uh, once again, reminded of the importance of knowing what normal looks like. Uh, he says, but since Wi-Fi is one of your favorite subjects, I thought you might be able to help. He says since yesterday, one of my TP link access points is showing the status disconnected, resetting power cycling. Nothing seems to be able to bring it back in the family. Some observations, although I'm not sure whether or how they would be related. The router of my ISP says, which is a Dutch company, um, is not showing in the the access point in the client log uh, of the various clients that are the DHCP clients that are listed. So okay, he says the security log of the router uh, shows an enormous amount of entries with SYN flood, most originating from um, a diff my 2019 iMac. He says, but maybe this is normal. Maybe I don't need to worry about it. And then looking at Activity Monitor on my Mac, I saw MDNS responder is uh, right at the top in terms of received bytes with 60 megabytes sent and 185 megabytes received. Again, he says, I don't know what normal looks like. Disconnecting the TP-Link access point from the controller did not change anything. He says, now that I write this, I suspect the two subjects are unrelated, but I'm also at a bit of a loss as to how to proceed. Yeah, so as far as normal goes, MDNS Responder is also my most popular network process too. A lot of things run through it, so uh, that's no, it is normal, you know, to to have that. It, it's, it absolutely will have lots of data run through it. Sin flood might be normal, too. You know, it's hard to know without a, a test. It's hard to know what your router sees as a, a problem big enough to choose to put it in its warning logs or debug log. Like, we don't know what log level the router is set to, so it, it might be okay. It might not. Um, it sounds to me like your TP link access point has had some kind of failure, maybe even just a hardware failure. Um, but I would do a full factory reset on it and see if you can, you know, at that point it should broadcast its own Wi-Fi signal so you can connect to it and configure it, you know, as new on your network. That's what I would try and
0: see if it works. So other than that, uh, what do you think, John? Hmm. Uh, yeah, it sounds like. Something rolled over.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It does, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 As far as sin, I mean that's a normal thing. Well, that could indicate trouble right. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um
1: all right. Let's um let's go to Larry here. Larry 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 allows us to zoom out a little bit. He says, uh, I've installed WebRoot Secure via Carbonite uh, and have had TunnelBear Tunnel Bear VPN as well. He says, do they perform some of the same functions in attempting to restart Carbonite? It appears uh, the new Mac operating system does not like it. A continuing problem. Uh, so it, it basically, we're asking sort of we zoom out a little bit. Internet security packages like this WebRoot Secure, but there's many others out there versus or as compared to a VPN, are they both doing the same thing? And from a technical standpoint, no. A VPN is connecting you via a secure tunnel to another network. And that will make it so that it looks like, you know, you're coming from there instead of your place. It also means that whatever network you're on, they can't sniff your packets and see even where you're connecting other than to a VPN. Right. So it's this shielded tunnel the internet security stuff usually is looking for inbound attacks things that you've had you know either installed or trying to install on your computer or visiting a website that you know you don't want to visit or you want to be protected against those types of things now they can also provide some encryption levels so it's possible that that there's some overlap between what a VPN and and what any given web security platform might provide. But in general, no, they are they are two separate types of things. And if you want the features of both, then you should use both. Now, whether you need those features of a web security platform, like that's a different conversation, which we can have. But uh, to answer the question, they are two separate things. So any thoughts to add on this one, John?
0: Um. Um. Look. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not too familiar with this product either. But um. Yeah. They have. Hmm. Yeah. They have. A, they have one entry here that says uh, uh secures your smartphones and tablets with a couple of asterisks. Yep. I don't know what that
1: means. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like. Yep. Yep. Exactly.
0: Ah. Uh, yeah. I don't think they're redundant. Yeah. It. It does some useful stuff. But uh. It sounds like VPN is not one of them. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Hopefully they get along.
1: All right. Uh, Yeah. Let's move on to Dennis has something of interest here. Dennis says, uh, my question is about the Synology RT 2600 router. This router replaced my airport extreme and I discovered it from your show. He says, I've been getting an email from my ISP for him Rogers in Canada telling me that there is a device that is showing signs of exploitable net BIOS vulnerability. And they send a log file that says, you know, and it, it even the machine name even says Synology router in it. And he's like, you know, what can I do to stop this? He says, it tends to happen occasionally, but not always. Uh, and and he says, when I've tested for it, I'm not seeing it. So I don't know. It, he seems to think that it's a it's a legitimate concern because it has the name Synology Router right in there. So presumably it's, you know, there is something broadcasting a, uh, you know, available NetBIOS port on it. Uh, S- Steve Gibson's shields up. Uh, he's at GRC dot com. That will pull your network for you and kind of look at things, which is a nice way to 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 see what the outside world can see about your network. And of course, Steve really knows the security and will he has built Shields Up to sort of detail, okay, you know, here's what we found, here's why it matters, and and then you can kind of get in there and, and solve some of those problems. Um the Synology router isn't just a router, it also, like, but it's not the only router that can do this. It can do some file sharing. It can do some other things. And it sounds like the Windows file sharing is at least some of the time being exposed to the WAN port, not just the LAN port. And there are some settings in the Synology router where you can configure, in fact, exactly this. So we sent some of those to to Dennis to, to turn off. But in general, that's what you're looking for in scenarios like this where it's saying, Hey, you know, you're sharing files potentially with the outside world. Do you want to do that? Go into your router settings. I've seen this with some Netgear routers and, you know, some of the more full featured routers have their own, um, you know, file servers in them and they can be your time machine destination or just your file sharing. Just like, it's pretty cool. Uh, But you want to make sure that when you turn on those features, that they're locked down to the things that you want them to be locked down to. And you've got to, pay attention there i suppose this is the is the lesson so thoughts mr brown it's nice that rogers does this for him i think
0: yeah i'd uh i'd get on the horn to uh synology and say hey what do you what do you guys think about this
1: yeah it, you, and you could ask synology support too of course but um and there but are there's you settings
0: the, why is why is yeah why is that port open i guess well that bios that's Yeah, it's I mean, the ports open because he's probably
1: checked the box that says open that port. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. with it's that with great power comes great responsibility scenario. The Synology is a pretty flexible router and you can do lots of different things with it. But you can also get yourself into a scenario where you've now configured it to do something that maybe you didn't want it to do. So um, so you just got to be, you know, go through those those uh those settings and make sure that you're not you know broadcasting to the outside world so yeah cool all right um yeah we got to do tim's i i almost put this in cool stuff found john but uh but i didn't so here it is uh because tim asked us a question he says um when i'm live streaming video uh and I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out why our stream is not as pristine as possible. And so I like immediately this question resonated with me, John, cause you know, we're doing the same thing, live streaming. He says, our streaming provider always asks for a screenshot of trace And he says he attached a screenshot of that. And the instructions are always to have us using the terminal to run the trace command for at least 10 minutes, which I thought was weird because trace route generally tends to run and then it's done. Uh, he says, uh, and that produces some results where we can see over time if there are any problems in the connection. And uh, and then he said, but when I go into network utility on my Mac and run trace route, it gives similar but different results. Well, here's the thing about these two utilities is he's using a utility called MTR, which is my trace route. And it's not available by default on the Mac, but you can install it with Homebrew. So this is definitely a geeky one, but you can say brew install MTR. And then uh, normally what a trace route does is you say trace route to say www.macobserver.com, right? And your computer figures out what route it's going to take across the Internet to get there. And then it shows you that route. But what it shows you is three ping times for each stop in that route. So you can look and see, ah, were there any problems getting to any of the hops there? And it can be a really helpful diagnostic tool. The thing is, some of those things that are hops are programmed to deprioritize ping returns. Because if they're busy being routers, they definitely don't want to be busy being like, ping hosts especially if they're really popular routers so you might see you know like really low ping times and then one high one or it you know misses two out of the three and then the next one after it is fine if the next one after it is fine you don't actually have a problem right because it's getting to the next one and we know what hop it's going through so don't worry about it but if you start to see that you know it gets worse and cascades from one to the next to the next. Now, you know, okay, there's, there's some problem between me and the host that I'm trying to get to. That's what traceroute does. You can do it in network utility. And it's kind of a fun thing Um, again, to know what normal looks like. I highly recommend just going and spending some time playing in there. Then if you want to go up a notch, install this MTR thing because MTR uh, runs a traceroute continually, John, And it shows you like average ping, best ping, packet loss, right? Because now it can calculate a packet loss percentage based on over time. And again, you're going to interpret the results the same way. If there's one in the middle that's showing, you know, 15% packet loss, but then the one below it is like zero or, you know, point something, well, don't sweat it, but, you know, gives you some information and it just runs until you, until you stop it. So I have a new fun utility to use, John, because I've never heard about MTR before And uh, until I saw Tim's uh, screenshot because Tim thought he was just running traceroute from the terminal. But no, no, no. Tim was running a special version that presumably his streaming provider sent to him. So pretty cool. What do you think, John? Have you messed with MTR yet?
0: Uh, no, I'll have to install it with my uh, favorite package manager. Yeah. Yeah. Haven't really had a need to do a trace route as of late.
1: It it's not I don't find it to be the most helpful of the network troubleshooting utilities. I mean, again, it it tells you what it tells you, but the ping times to the interim devices, say between me and you, are irrelevant. If my pings to you are good, I don't care what's happening in the middle. Like doesn't matter. It's like we're good. So that's that's kind of why mm-hmm. I, I don't start with tracer. But, you know, if I'm seeing their Yeah, bad the other
0: t- thing I've noticed is sometimes uh, devices along the chain won't respond and then it just gets stuck. Right. Right. Well, it'll get stuck for a little bit because it'll try the three for mm-hmm. that
1: one and then it jumps to the next mm-hmm. one. But you're right. At some point, right, right. like some devices just won't respond to pings. Some Web servers, I think. In fact, we might even have the, the Mac Observer web server set not to respond to pings. I think that's how our admins set it up. So, like, it'll respond to web requests, so should be good. But yeah, uh, it might be. I forget now we've changed so many things with it, but um, anyway. All right, we got time for one more on the Wi-Fi front here. Robert writes. He says, uh, "I wanted to share a tip on solving a Wi-Fi problem that was driving me crazy. My AT&T U-verse connection comes in uh, at the front right corner of my house. My home office uh, is in the basement in the rear left corner of the house. To fix the understandably pitiful Wi-Fi signal in my basement." I ran some Ethernet cable down to my office with a Netgear Wi Fi access point on the other end. I have three iPads, a fourth edition mini, a 10.5 inch Pro, and a 12 inch Pro, plus my iPhone 10 Max or whatever it's called. He says, ever since iOS 13 was released, my iDevices get amnesia when it comes to my Wi Fi passwords. It doesn't matter which Wi Fi spot I'm hooking up to, upstairs or down in my basement. A list. Additionally, this only occurs with my iDevices. It does not affect any of my other computers, which run Catalina, Windows 10, Linux, etc. cetera. Uh, and it doesn't affect my non-Apple tablets and phones. He says it's not every time, but perhaps once or twice a week, one of the iDevices will pop up an error telling me invalid password when connecting. I can copy-paste the password in from LastPass, type it in, or autofill it from the keychain, all to no avail. It will keep telling me invalid password. I finally figured out how to easily solve the problem. I simply tap the top of the Wi-Fi settings to turn Wi-Fi off, then turn it back on. And now it connects right up with no issues or complaints. doesn't even ask me for the password, he says. So he says, I thought I'd pass this along. And yeah, I've seen this and I, I agree that it became more frequent with iOS 13. This is usually, as you're finding, not a sign of iOS having forgotten the password, It's a sign of the device being unable to negotiate a connection strong enough to pass credentials back and forth. Um, And by turning Wi-Fi off and on, you're essentially allowing your phone to stop trying to retain its connection and, in fact, just start a new one from scratch where it looks and finds the best possible signal. So it, it sounds like. As we dig in here, maybe iOS 13 changed some tolerances where iOS would try harder to maintain its original connection before roaming. Um, And without a mesh system where it's telling it to roam, you could run into some problems like this. Um, So, yeah, interesting. Um, I'm wondering, John, as we're going through this, if Robert is using the same SSID on the AT&T U-verse thing that he is on the Netgear extender or if he's using separate SSIDs because it sounds like he's using separate ones because he can pick which of the two he wants to connect to and that would only be possible with separate SSIDs, but that might be the reason that it's like having trouble. If you put them all on the same SSID and let your devices choose, this problem might get solved. Cause then they would jump to the right one because otherwise they're trying to hold on to one network and not jump to the other. I don't know. It's, you know, these are weird problems to solve over the, uh, over the, uh,
0: you know, remotely. So what do you think, John? Um, the only thing that I've had this happen on occasion. So one observation is that it's all the Apple stuff that seems to be having a problem or sure. devices. Um sometimes i've run into this even on mac os sometimes it'll come up and ask for a password, and i 'm like, well, why are you asking me for this it's, mm-hmm. it's in the sometimes the keychain gets confused oh. um so sometimes I found actually deleting the entry in the keychain for a particular s s i d um we had someone that that had a problem like this a while ago and this solved it. Um, sometimes you'll see multiple entries for the same. <laughs> that's true. Uh, SSID, and I've seen that, and I think sometimes iOS and even macOS get confused, and they pick the wrong one, and then you keep getting this, you know, invalid password. Right. So yeah, to fix so, that, if it's ha- if that's the problem,
1: um, to fix that on your iOS devices, you'd have to go. Uh, I don't think telling them mm. to forget the network is enough, but it might be. But I would go into keychain mm-hmm. access on your Mac, remove those entries, and then let them be auto-created the one time you connect to that access point, mm-hmm. And then that'll get synced over iCloud to your iOS devices. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. Mm. See, we keep this stuff fun, but... Um, you know, like all good things, John, our fun must come to an end here because you know, well it's it's just how it works, and we don't you know we don't have unlimited time together. we have nice time together, so quality over quantity, although I feel like you know with our forty five minute show that we started fifteen years ago that has now stretched into an hour and a half, like that's not too bad double the pleasure, double the fun. Double the info. That's why we had to move from three new things to five new things when, when <laughs> 2019 started. So yes. All right. All right. Um, thanks for listening. Everybody go find a friend and tell them about the show, like email them, text them, whatever. We would love that. That would be awesome. If you would do that, John, how, uh, do you have anything to share? places to contact us anything you like
0: i should i should tell our local next door group boy everybody's complaining about their uh, internet connection tell them to to listen to mac Geekab. that's helpful (laughs) and it's rock solid Uh, i've had rock solid i'm very happy with optimum i can count the number of times on one hand that there's been a major outage that i could detect yeah that's good Um, that's good A lot of people, they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, my connection drops like multiple times a day. I'm like, that's not right. Yeah, not if they're in your same
1: neighborhood. No, it's probably. I mean, it could be like, you know, I I think we talked about it on the show at the beginning of quarantine. My neighbor across the street was having a problem. And I was like, "Okay, well, and it it was past his cable modem because I had put a new cable modem over there right before we all had to kind of lock down. And um and that didn't solve it. And I was like, okay, well, then, you know, call Comcast. And sure enough, they came out and we checked his number. Oh, I think we talked about it. We checked his numbers on the cable one. It was like negative 40 mm. or something power <laughs> level. Like, yeah, dude. But, but barring that, yeah, you're right. It's usually your Wi Fi. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. And I replied to one the other day. I'm like, you know what? Get an arrow. Yeah. <laughs> or a mesh system. Some kind of mesh problem. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's totally true.
1: All right. Uh yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Thanks for sending in all your questions. You can call us, you know, at 224-888Geek, which John is
0: 4335? Three,
1: three, that is correct. As far as I remember. Uh yeah, we'd love to uh we'd love to hear from you. Or you can go download the Mac Geek Gab app and you can send us audio comments that way. I think that's how we got the one that was in the show today. So yeah, it's uh it all works. Of course, I want to thank our sponsors uh, that we mentioned in the show. Of course, Burrow dot com slash MGG. check that out, barebones.com, Mac dot and uh, check out our, our, our other sponsors too at MacGeekUp.com slash sponsors because we keep the deals all up to date for you there so you can find deals from people like, you know, like Eero and, and Smile and OWC and, and Linode and those sorts of things. They're all right there. Even past sponsors that aren't sponsors, but the deals are still alive. So you benefit. I don't know. You benefit, Sean. You benefit. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything? Oh, no other way. It's yeah. I'm I'm on the other side of your mic. That's how I do it. I, that like when I'm looking in the video here, I have to look at where you are Mm -hmm. in relation to my microphone and then I know where to point. So that's right. Visual frame of reference Mm
0: -hmm.
1: for those of you that are watching, remember that you can watch uh, and you can have fun. You can listen. We, uh, other than these little moments, we really try to keep it audio focused And uh, because it's important when we're doing things like this to uh, for everybody to benefit, nobody to feel left out. And, uh, you know, that's how we work on making sure we don't get caught.
2: May not.